Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode and another edition of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue profiling the outstanding authors and publishers that call Appalachia home. I am your host, Elliot Parker. This is a very special episode. If you're joining us for the first time or you have been a listener with us for a long time, If it's just your first time, welcome. If this is your repeat time listening, welcome back. Very special episode today because this is the second, or this is the fourth, actually, the debut of our fourth year of podcasts here on the network. We started this uh, uh, back in late August, early September, four years ago, and here we are in 2021, despite a pandemic and everything else that's gone on over the last four years have managed to keep things moving and have managed to keep uh, recording and to keep these outstanding interviews uh, by authors and publishers from the Appalachian region brought to you. And we want to appreciate those of you uh, for sticking with us over the last four years. And if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we're so glad to have you as part of the audience as we kick off our fourth year of podcasts and fourth year of author and publisher interviews here on the program. So delighted to have you here as we kick off our fourth season. We've got a new uh, voiceover intro. We've got a new out cue as well that you'll hear uh, in just a little bit. And we've got a terrific, terrific lineup of authors coming your way in the first part of 2021 as we kick off our fourth season. And we're going to get started with one of those uh, outstanding authors today. His name is Wiley Cash. And some of you may know him if you're an Appalachian reader of Appalachian fiction. He's one of the best writers we have writing Appalachian fiction today. And we're so glad to have him on the program today to talk about his new novel, When Ghosts Come Home. And he is the award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of several novels, including A Land More Kind Than Home, the acclaimed This Dark Road to Mercy, and most recently prior to this book, a novel called The Last Ballad. He's a winner and finalist for numerous prizes, including being a two-time winner of the Southern Book Prize, and he's also been a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. He is the founder of the Open Canon Book Club, serves as the writer-in-residence at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, and when he's not doing all of that, he still lives uh, in North Carolina with his wife, Mallory, and their two daughters, who are as cute as they can be. And so, Wiley, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you here today, and thanks for helping us kick off our fourth season of podcasts. Thank you so much, Elliot, and thanks for uh, keeping it going this long. That's quite an accomplishment. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And I have been a big fan of yours for a long time. And I was so delighted when I heard uh, back in the spring that this book was coming out. And I appreciate you uh, being able to, to fit us into your schedule. I know your book launch is getting ready to get started here and you've got a lot of things going on. So thanks for uh, giving us some time today. I, I wanted to ask you first about when you set this story. You set this story in 1984. And as I was reading it, I kept thinking this could be a story that was really set in 1994, 2004, 1974, uh, a variety of different decades and time periods. Why did you pick 1984 in terms of the the time frame, in terms of when to set the book? Well, I tend to always uh, choose eras that are kind of rife with tension. You know, you mentioned my last novel, uh, which is based on a true, the true story of a textile mill strike in my hometown in Gastonia in 1929, which was an era rife with tension. You know, 
class discord, uh, political tension, um, racial tension, all of, all of these things, because tension is where stories come from. That's, the, that's what keeps you at the desk, is the tension of trying to resolve all these conflicts. And 1984 was a particularly contentious time and in America, um, you know, we had, you know, the rise of say no to drugs. We had um, kind of the collapse of the middle class in many ways. But at the same time, uh, all these tensions, we had, you know, racial tension. Um, we had the fallout from school desegregation. But at the same time, all of these cultural historical tensions were kind of glossed over by the election in 1984 when Ronald Reagan won 60% of the popular vote and won 49 states, except for Walter Mondale's home state of Minnesota. And so if you look at the election that year, we would appear to be an incredibly unified country. But at the same time, we have great, great angst in the working class, great strife uh, in the Black community. We have a fear of outsiders. We have, we have a lot going on that we tend to forget, especially when we look back in political terms, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen is, is, uh, is singing that, uh, I was born down in a dead man's town, but at the same time, Ronald Reagan's telling us that it's morning in America and both of those things cannot be true. And I, you know, hearing you say that reminds me of a story I read about Margaret Atwood and when she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, one of her inspirations for writing that was concern that Reagan would be reelected in 1984. And she felt like our society would become kind of The Handmaid's Tale uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So, so hearing you say that is really interesting. And that ties into kind of my next question, because everything that you were just talking about there, kind of, of where the country was, uh, a snapshot of the United States in 1984, you kind of carry that over into Oak Island, North Carolina. Carolina, which is the setting of your story. And I, I just noted a couple of passages, and this just gives kind of a, a picture of, of where we are, but also of, of the real richness of the book and, and of your writing. And you you write about, and we're going to talk about uh, Winston here uh, in just a minute, uh, your protagonist, but you write about the inky black roll of the water, the thin ghostly silhouettes of the pine trees, that there's moss that hung from them, the brackish air coming from the waterway behind him, the salty tang of the ocean on the other side of the island. So we have this beautiful place in which this story takes place, but the beauty kind of masks a lot of those tensions and a lot of those issues, societal issues you were talking about uh, just a moment ago, that, that kind of permeates the periphery of this community. Can you talk a little bit about uh, setting that up as kind of a, a plot device in the novel and kind of bringing that together to where it's kind of puncturing the outside of this beautiful idyllic place? Sure, you know, the South is rife with secrets, especially the, the eastern part of North Carolina, where we have a, you know, a, a beach culture, a plantation culture, which has all of its, you know, complicated and, and violent and, and devastating history. So there are so many things that we don't like to acknowledge. We'd rather acknowledge the pine trees and the Spanish moss and all of these beautiful things, while not acknowledging these really violent undercurrents that kind of thread through those histories. And so I wanted to write a novel where people had people because of the actions in the novel, the, the arrival of this mysterious airplane that crash lands in the middle of the night, it's left abandoned on the runway. I wanted people to be forced out of their comfort zones to really confront ugly truths about their history, their, their personal history, perhaps uh, their region, their community. Um, and, and, and bring these things to light, because as I said, it's, it's oftentimes so, you know, so easy to, let's say, drive past a plantation and talk about how beautiful it is without ever really acknowledging um, the horror that went on there. And, and so much Southern soul is that way. 
Yeah, very well said. Very well said. I wanted to ask you about uh, your protagonist, uh, Winston, who uh, is just a, a wonderful character. He's just a, a terrifically good, decent person. And one of the things I really liked about him as, as kind of the hero of the story, he's the one that first uh, wakes up in the middle of the night um, next to his wife, Marie, and hears that low flying plane and realizes that that's probably not supposed to be the kind of plane flying in at, at the small airport there uh, in Oak Island, North Carolina. But one of the things I really like about him is he he fit, doesn't fit the, the sort of a, the, the typical kind of hero mold of these kinds of stories. He's an older man. He's, he's in his mid-60s. Um, he's running for re-election. He's, he's being challenged by sort of a, a rich, spoiled, nefarious uh, townsman who's uh, putting some pressure on him there. But uh, and then you, you sometimes wonder when you when you hear him talk and you, and you read his thoughts, maybe he, he's ready to retire at the same time. Maybe if he did lose the election, he, he's ready to, to move on. And I was wondering uh, in, in creating him choosing to make him a little bit older kind of towards the the latter part of his life when a lot of these kinds of uh, sheriffs and police officers and FBI agents that sometimes inhabit these stories are a little bit younger kind of in the prime of their career well what made you decide to kind of make him older a little more seasoned in that way you know that's a really good question I I knew he was going to have a younger daughter who was going to have some serious agency and so if that were the case I knew that he was going to have to be a little bit older for his daughter to have done the things that I needed her character to have done but I think also I was I'm really interested in, in heroes or people who at least who want to be heroes or who we assume are going to be the heroes of a, of a story and making them as accessible and uh, relatable as possible. And you also, you know, I knew that I was going to have to have uh, a law enforcement official in, in one way or another because of the setup of this novel. And I thought, well, what kind of pressures can I bring to bear on this guy? Well, what if he's a little bit older? What if he's facing a tough reelection battle? What if his wife's not well? What if his daughter comes home? What if they don't have a lot of money? What if they need the health insurance that comes with this job? And I found that when I put all these pressures and limitations on him, and again, I'm going back to tension, that's where story comes from, his character just became so real and so vital and it made him much more fun to write about. Excellent. Very good. And something else that you do in, in the story that, that, that is so great and something that really catches the reader's attention is, uh, yes, this is a sort of a murder mystery story that has to be solved. And, and we'll talk about what Winston finds out when he gets to the runway uh, in just a minute. But there's also kind of a story within the story and you kind of touched on it a moment ago. We've got Colleen, his daughter, who has lost a child with her husband and they live in Texas. Uh, we have Winston dealing with his wife Marie's cancer that has come back and mm -hmm. th there's a sense throughout the novel that it's not going well and that she's worse off now than maybe she ever has been before in terms of battling the illness. So it, it is about the murder mystery, but it's also about, about these, these people that are dealing with um, sort of these internal family dynamic pressures, but also kind of pressure being put on them uh, from the outside. And you touched on you touched on tension a moment ago. And I'm just wondering, um, as a writer, and I know you've done several kind of kind of murder mystery esque stories in your career. Um, if you feel like that's something that that needs to be there in terms of having the, the murder mystery itself, but having having these people really seem like real people dealing with real issues and real problems. It, it, it needs to be there for me. You know, this is the first real mystery I've written, I think. You know, I've, I've won like crime writing awards and mystery writing awards. And, and I've always been really kind of shocked by the mystery stuff because I see mysteries as these really tight woven, highly intelligent, highly cerebral. And that's just not really the kind of writer that <laughs> I'm not. I'm not very cerebral. I'm not very intelligent. That's just not the kind of writer that I am. I, I like to create 
these rich characters and then kind of trouble their characterizations and see what all the pressure points are in their lives and their relationships and see what kind of stories connect them and what kind of connections breed stories. Um, but I kind of stumbled into this one being a mystery here at the very end, you know, the last, the last several drafts, I thought, oh my God, this, this novel is surprising me in ways that nothing else I've ever written is surprising me. And so I was really happy that I had what I felt were rich, believable, uh, dynamic characters, but they found themselves caught up in what turns out to be hopefully a really surprising mystery with some twists and turns, especially at the end. But <clears throat> I think it's those rich characterizations that keep me at the desk. You know, I don't write books necessarily very quickly. You know, some mystery writers can crank them out and I don't, I don't do that. Um, so in order to stay with the project for, for, you know, more than a year or so or two years, I've got to really be interested in the characters and they have to keep surprising me. And these, these characters definitely did that. There, there are just some achingly tender moments uh, in this story. And we talked about Colleen a moment ago. Well, when, when you talk about the struggles that these characters are having, it's, it's that scene that you write after um, she loses her child and then, um, or she miscarries with her child, with her baby. And then uh, the husband goes upstairs and um, they had this beautifully decorated nursery and he kind of closes the door and seals that off. And then later on, um, you know, she goes over uh, up there and then stuff's kind of a rolled towel at the bottom of the nursery door. I mean, there's just some achingly beautiful moments that really humanize these characters and make them seem, you know, fully fleshed out. And, and, and there's just moments that, you know, you just have to, there's so many moments in this story where I had to stop and just feel like, oh my gosh, I, I, how would I respond if I was in, in that circumstance? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, uh, going back to the mystery, uh, what Winston finds out when he gets to the runway. So he hears the plane. We talked about that a moment ago. It flies overhead. He gets up. He goes out to the runway. And he's got a real mess on his hands when he gets out there. What, what does he find on the runway when he gets there besides a plane? And well, uh, what happens next? Well, it's the middle of the night. Uh, his re-elections, I think, about five days away. And he drives out to the runway, something has awakened him, and he drives out to this turf runway, this municipal airport, and he finds an abandoned DC-3, which is a World War II era cargo plane. It's much too large for this runway. It's kind of crash landed. It's tried to turn around. The rear landing gear has snapped off. The plane has been abandoned. There's no sign of anyone. Later, they will find no fingerprints in it even. But lying beside the plane on the runway is the body of a local man who's been shot dead and left behind. So the sheriff has two, two mysteries in effect. He has the mystery of, you know, where did this plane come from and what is it doing here and what was in it and who flew it? And also does this local guy whose father is a local civil rights leader and a high school history teacher, does this local guy have anything to do with this? You know, this local guy's name's Rodney Bellamy. He's got a wife and a young newborn baby. He has no criminal record. But nonetheless, here he is. And, and um, what is the sheriff going to do with it? And then his opponent, uh, who's challenging him in this election, is the son of a local developer. He's kind of a moneyed good old boy. And he uses the body of this dead local Black resident to cite kind of racial discord, uh, going on night rides in the community, telling people, you know, the black citizens are smuggling drugs into this community and the sheriff's just letting it happen and he can't stop crime. And, you know, and I'm thinking about all these, these racialized sentiments that drove the political moment in the mid 1980s, everything from the D.A.R.E. program uh, 
to Willie Horton and welfare queens and all of these conversations we had in the deep South that were fostered by people like Jesse Helms or, you know, whoever uh, to, to, you know, tie crime to, to black communities. And that's certainly what the sheriff's challenger is doing in the novel. And so the sheriff has to deal with the fallout from all of that. And then, as you mentioned, his daughter, Colleen comes home, surprises him and his wife, and she's nursing these, these tragic wounds from her loss of her child and her marriage. And she comes home in the thick of this investigation and the sheriff finds himself suddenly with a lot on his hands. We're speaking with Wiley Cash on this episode of Now Appalachia. His new novel is When Ghosts Come Home. We'll come back to the book uh, in just a second. But Wiley, I wanted to ask you just a few more questions about you and kind of your, your career as a writer. We mentioned a moment ago that you're the founder of the Open Canon Book Club. Tell us a little bit about what that is and why you decided to found that. Well, Open Canon was a book club that I started in the summer of 2018. And I started it because... At the time, I was visiting a lot of book clubs talking about The Last Ballad, and I noticed that most of the book clubs I visited were uh, primarily white, and they were primarily female of a, of a certain age. And when they told me what they were reading, it was clear to me that they were reading a lot of books by people like me, people who reminded them of their sons or their husbands. So they were reading a lot of Tom Franklin and David Joy and Ron Rash and Charles Frazier and... Uh, you know, a couple of female writers, but but largely white, white males from the South. And they would always ask me for suggestions. And I thought, you know, what if I created a book club that just made suggestions for these book clubs that might follow me that I might have access to? And so I decided to form the Open Canon Book Club. And almost overnight, we had thousands of members. It was an online book club. We would set up you know, online meet and greets with the authors, anyone from Krista Wilkinson to Viet Thanh to win after he won the Pulitzer for uh, The Sympathizer. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. We had uh, independent bookstores across the country giving discounts to book club members. And um, as I said, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. But when the coronavirus hit, I actually folded the book club and repurposed it as the Corona Canon. And I was using it to publicize authors who would have otherwise been on book tour, whose tours were ruined by the coronavirus. And so I was, I was, you know, hosting authors literally every day on social media and interviews and all kinds of stuff. And then we went on with that for about a month. And then um, I had to, to refocus many things in my life as someone whose income comes from traveling around and doing workshops and speaking gigs at libraries and universities, none of which could happen with the coronavirus. And so I had to let some of that stuff that was um, a very beneficial part of my life and a very important part of my life, but not anything that sustained my family economically. I had to let some of those things go, but it was, it was fantastic while it lasted. And um, yeah. Excellent. So you're writer, the writer in residence at the university of North Carolina, Asheville, what do you do there and what do you teach? I do a lot of things. My, my primary role at the university is I teach fiction writing um, and I sometimes teach literature classes. This semester, I'm teaching a fiction writing workshop and I'm teaching a class in uh, horror, uh, horror fiction. Um, but I also do a lot of work for uh, other offices across campus. I work with admissions, recruiting students and meeting with their parents. I um, work with advancement, going out with friends of the university and talking with them about exciting literary ventures we've got. Um, I connect with the community over uh, a number of literary initiatives. 
Um, so I, I wear a lot of hats here, but it's it's great. You know, this is where I went to school as an undergraduate. It's uh, one of the best public liberal arts schools in the country. And the students here are fantastic. It's a small campus. I have just brilliant, curious students. And I'm happy as can be to be here. That's fantastic. What are you reading right now? Oh, gosh, what am I reading? Well, I just finished um, Jen, I think her name's Shaplin, either Shaplin or Shiplin. I should have been more prepared. Um, her book, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, uh, which is brilliant. It's 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 mind blowing how good it is. And so I've gone back to my old copy of uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter um, by Carson McCullers. Um, I'm also finishing up Teresa Ann Fowler's uh, new novel, uh, which will be out next spring, I think. So I've always got a lot of irons in the fire and I'm reading a lot of student work. Fantastic. Fantastic. We're talking with Wiley Cash on this episode of Now Appalachia about his career as a writer and also his new book, When Ghosts Come Home. And we'll come back to the book now. And uh, Wiley, I want to ask you one, one technique that you have in the book is, is we really get the story from three points of view. We get it from Colleen's perspective. We get the events of what's happening from Winston's perspective. But there's a third point of view character who's really fascinating, and his name is Jay. And he's a teenage boy. He's trying to kind of stay out of trouble. He's not doing very well at staying out of trouble. Um, tell us a little bit about him and kind of his role in the story. And how did you balance writing those three different points of view or kind of putting those three different points of view around the central story um, as it unfolds? So Jay is, uh, he's a teenager. Uh, he is the young brother-in-law of the man who was found dead on the runway, Rodney Bellamy. And Jay has, is growing up in Atlanta and he gets in a little trouble in Atlanta and his parents, um, who are kind of country folks themselves living down in, in the big city, they send him up to Oak Island, North Carolina to live with his sister, who's always been the epitome of responsibility and achievement. She is entering the, the black middle class. She's married to, uh, you know, she's college educated. Her husband's college educated. He's got a great job. They've got a young baby. And Jay's parents essentially tell him, especially his father, you know, you got to get out of Atlanta and you need to get your mind right before you come home because you're going to end up in jail or dead, you know. And because, um, because you know, black fathers, especially in the 80s and even now, I mean, they know what happens. We, we all know what happens to, 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 to these children who make one mistake, you know, whether they go into a construction site or they're holding a toy gun on a playground. We know you know, much less getting in scrapes with the law, which Jay has done. And so they sent him up to the country. And after his uh, brother-in-law is found dead, Jay finds himself caught up in the, the chaos that is, that is visited upon the Black community um, by the, 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 the racial instigations of this man, Bradley Fry, who's running for sheriff, who's trying to grab power, who's caught up in, in so many um, evils in the, in the community. Excellent. And uh... Tell us a little bit about Bradley Fry. Well, the best way I can describe him being from North Carolina is I tell people that Bradley Fry is the wealthy kid who um, drives to the basket when you're playing basketball and puts up a wild shot and waits to see if it goes in or not before he calls a foul on you. Um, that's, that's, that's my best description of who Bradley Fry is. He is a guy who doesn't deserve anything he has but believes he's earned it nonetheless. He's a guy who confuses money with power. He's a guy who confuses power with intelligence and who confuses fear with capability. 
and he is trying to seize control and um, of the legal, you know, uh, mechanisms of this of this county on the coast of North Carolina. And um, he is the, obviously the main adversary of the sheriff in the reelection battle, but he's also the sheriff's adversary in kind of an ethical battle. Excellent. I want to ask you another stylistic question. You use flashbacks so well uh, in a lot of your in a lot of your work, but especially uh, in this particular book. And I was wondering, is there a formula you follow when you're writing in terms of kind of when to stop the the present action and flashback and fill in those details, or is that something that just kind of goes as you're or comes as you're in the mindset of certain characters? How do you do that? Because we learn so much about the these people from those flashbacks and from kind of the characters looking back on how they got to this particular place. How did you set that up? How, how do you do that normally? Well, one thing that I, you know, I always tell my students that writers have a writer's sense. We can, and, 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 and what I mean by that is we can sense when the narrative is slowing down. We can sense when the narrative is too fast. And sometimes people can sense the narrative slowing down. So they pile on a lot of adverbs and a lot of gerunds and a lot of melodramatic language. Um, when I sense the narrative is slowing down, it tells me, okay, the characters who are in charge of moving this thing along, they're gonna be static for a moment and they're gonna sit down. Like there's an example where Colleen is waiting for her dad to pick her up outside the airport. That's a moment she's sitting, what else can she do? You know, I could describe the grass or I could describe the cars in the parking lot or I could describe the airplanes taking off and tell you how hot it is. But I'd rather use that opportunity to reflect on what it means to wait for your father. And when you wait for your father, it might dredge up memories of other times you've waited for your father. So what you're doing as a writer, you're filling the time and you're accounting for time on the page, but you're also giving the reader insight to a character. And so I think it's the kind of thing you feel your way through, but you can only do it if you really have a sense of who the characters are. Excellent. Well said. Well said. So what is Wiley Cash working on next? Oh, gosh, I got a I got another novel under contract um, set uh, on the coast of North Carolina. Again, coincidentally, we, we, we moved down there in 2013. Both my daughters have been born there. So I'm find myself trying to explore that place and get to know it instead of the Western part of the state, which is what I've always written about until now. Um, but I'm working on a new book set in 2018 um, that traces the effects of the Statue of Silent Sam being taken down on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. Oh, fantastic. That will be great. I know that will be a great story to tell and you will do a great job of telling it. I know that for certain. Well, thank you, so Elliot. So Wiley, as we finish up with you today here on the program, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you uh, about your career, to find out more about not only When Ghosts Come Home, but your other books, uh, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you? And then also, where can they get copies of When Ghosts Come Home? Best way to get a hold of me is to go to wileycash.com. Uh, you can find out uh, tour events. I'm doing a number of virtual events, but I'm doing a lot of in-person events. The book comes out September 21st. Um, you can order um, signed copies from Books A Million online. If you go online to Books A Million, I, I, they've got a couple of thousand signed copies and they'll send you one if you want one. And if you want a personalized signed copy, you can go to Malaprop's website in Asheville, North Carolina, and they'll write them a note, go to Malaprop's, and they'll, they'll send you a personalized signed copy if that's what you would like. Terrific. We have been delighted to be joined by Wiley Cash today here on Now Appalachia his new novel, and it is a spectacular one. It's called When Ghosts Come Home.
And uh, Wiley Cash is a New York Times bestselling author. And this is going to be something you're going to want to add to your fall to be red pile. Wiley, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for helping us kick off our fourth year of podcasting. And congratulations on the book. And uh, as you get that next novel finished, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk. Well, thank you, Elliot. I really appreciate the time. We want to take a moment as we uh, finish up on this program and this edition of the program to give a special shout out and a special thanks to the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate her uh, not only uh, producing and supporting this podcast, but she's been our biggest supporter and biggest organizer of all the podcasts that you've heard here on the program over the last four years. This program was kind of her idea and kind of her uh uh, a sort of baby, so to speak. And so she approached me four years ago to get it started. And she's been our biggest cheerleader and champion uh, in helping us get these podcasts produced and aired to you. So Pam, thanks for all of your support. We also want to say thanks to those of you who've stuck with us over the last four years. And again, if this is your first time joining us, if you just kind of stumbled upon the podcast, looking through some other things to listen to on your iTunes or Apple or SoundCloud uh, playlist. We're glad to have you and we hope you'll join us uh, again next time as we continue profiling outstanding authors and publishers uh, with connections to the Appalachian region. We also want to remind you that this podcast and all of our podcasts are copyrighted and owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. Please come again next time and in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.